on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed number 126, Jackie and Rob Park share about empathy toward greater inclusion. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I was really honored to get to do a workshop for a group of people from Iraq looking into strategies for developing women's leadership in higher ed in the Middle East. And after I did so, my friend who coordinated the program, Dr. Sandy Morgan, who's been on the show before, said, ah, you got to talk to Jackie Park. You've got to talk to Jackie Park. She was phenomenal because she gave a workshop for them as well. And she's here today joining me for the show. Jackie, thanks for coming on Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having us. Jackie is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she maintains a practice in Fullerton and also teaches as an assistant professor where I teach at Vanguard University. And Jackie said, hey, I'd love to be on your show, but I've got you one better. (laughs) She told me (laughs) about her husband, Rob, and Rob teaches in information technology at the University of Southern California. He has a lifelong love of technology from the technical to the creative and experience in software development, information technology, web design, audio engineering, which he's loving being here in the actual podcasting studio right now, and uh, TV production and digital media. Rob, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it has been so fun to be connected with both of you, and it feels like today is just a continuation of a dialogue that at least Jackie and I began, and and Rob has been joining us in. And as you shared some of your stories, we really realized that one thing that was coming through in all of the stories and in what you wanted to share today was really about empathy and if we even take it a step further, really about love. And we, we thought we might start with each of you sharing a story of where you really didn't experience empathy, either through your teaching or perhaps even just through works with colleagues or in your role. And who would like to go first? <laughs> dun, dun, dun. I'll go first. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Jackie, tell us about a horrible experience that you've had. All right. Just to cheer us we'll up We'll just here. really kick it off and start it off strong. Um, so I thought of a, an example, I guess, in higher ed. And this was at a previous institution I had been working at where the faculty knew me really well and I'm sure um, really liked me and appreciated me as a colleague. But I had applied for a job within the same institution and I wasn't going to apply for it. I only did it because a mentor was encouraging me and really believed in me to do it. Gave me that shot of confidence that I needed because I didn't feel qualified for it, which I'm now learning is not uncommon for women. Mm-hmm. But he had encouraged me to apply. So sort of um, put myself out there, applied and hadn't heard back yet from the faculty about the application. And I was actually sitting in a staff meeting with everyone and they were talking about how excited they were to interview another person for that position this upcoming Monday. And I was sitting at the table Mm. while they said that. Um, And they were just totally oblivious that I had applied for this position. And so um, I think for me, that was just a feeling of being so invisible 
And mm. so as we talk about love, I'm noticing that, you know, when there's a lack of love, I think it's when we feel unseen or we don't feel heard. And then love kind of makes us feel the opposite. I think we do feel seen and we feel heard by people. Yeah. Thank you. Rob, your turn to depress us now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll tell a story that, that Jackie helped me remember. So you can't see it in podcast land, but so I do, I'm in, do use a wheelchair and there's a host of funny stories and then stories that are less funny about that. But uh, I was interviewing for a job and uh, I came up that I was, uh, I was married and, and the person interviewing me. So there's already a power, you know, differential in this said, Oh, that's great. You're married, which in and of itself is a strange, you know? Yes. Okay. But that's fine. So it's great that you're married. Is your wife in a wheelchair too? And <laughs> So many things were through my mind at that time, but I, you know, obviously I was applying for a job. And so I was like, no, actually she's not. The gentleman said, uh, that's great. Wow. <laughs> and we just sort of sat there for a moment in <laughs> awkward silence and then went back to talking about the job. And it's, uh, I think it's a, I think nothing malicious was, was meant, um, but it's super awkward and uncomfortable. Uh, and uh, probably just as we had talked about earlier, just, uh, someone doesn't really know what to say or how to how to dance around something that's really awkward, and and I get it. You know, they don't encounter people with certain disabilities all the time, and so it's just maybe maybe being awkward. But yeah, that that was my my story. We talk about unconscious biases, and I was even sharing with the two of you that I had an unconscious bias that when I heard that Rob teaches at USC, I had just assumed that you lived somewhere distant more toward that university and were way down here, you know, far away. There, there's all these things that can happen where we can have unconscious biases that can inadvertently show up. And all three of us sitting around this table today know that we do it as well. And it's tough, I think, sometimes thinking about something that you can see about another person. I did, was not aware that you were in a wheelchair and became until it became pertinent for me to know, which would be, are you actually going to be able to enter our house? And <laughs> Jackie was very gracious in terms of us communicating around that. But it's, I think there are so many things too that come up that either are not as obvious and can't be seen, ways in which we aren't able to love our students the way that we wish that we could or have the kind of empathy for our students that we wish we could. And then also even just in the hiring process, how things can come up in the hiring process that would perhaps even dissuade people from coming into our institutions because of things that we can't yet see about them because we basically turn them away before they can even have a chance to apply. And Rob, I know you have had a few experiences being on different search committees and also looking to be more inclusive in your field in information technology. Of course, we know that that is a primarily male male-led mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about some of the ways you're trying to change the language and help your colleagues be more inclusive, even just in the hiring process. Yeah. So it's something I'm learning more about, not the disparity. The disparity of, of gender is, is pretty apparent and something I, um, we as a, I think a faculty try to strive to improve. But I think some of the mechanisms to do that is something that I'm learning about. And so I've been fortunate to able to, to help rewrite um, some of our job job postings and um, and sort of just doing research on what what people have found about what sort of language you can use in the job postings. They can be 
you know, I think there, there's studies where they, in information technology, so we do computer programming, software development, things like that. It can say like, oh, we're hiring a coding ninja or this person <laughs> is a, a ha- you're going to be a chief hacker. And those are, those are kind of like, oh, cool, edgy terms. Mm-hmm. Um, but what they've, they found is they end up basically perpetuating like a culture, um, for lack of a better, a male dominated sort of even like bro like culture. And so certainly USC's job postings are not like that, but but more broadly, it's languages of of like community building and inclusion. And we are like a collaborative team of faculty, things like that. And just sort of reading what, what studies have been done. That's one thing that, that I found. Um, the other thing that Jackie and I talk a lot about is the other studies about, you know, if you have 10 job requirements on an application, for example, on average, if a and, I, and the numbers might be slightly skewed, so don't quote me on these. But like, if a if a male applicant meets four of ten, let's say, they're going to mm-hmm. apply. And if a female applicant uh, might be closer to six or even higher. In fact, I had two students just this week. We had this conversation about it, and they like proved it to a point where the students like, yeah, a male student said, I yeah, if I see like two up two, I'll, like I'll just apply. I figure what what does it hurt. Um, and the, the female student was like, well, even if I meet all of them, I feel kind of like I shouldn't really apply, you know? Um, and so we've, we've worked to sort of add accurate descriptions of jobs because I think there's a there's a culture of like, well, we'll just add extra and people will apply anyways, right? And we'll just, and then, then we can filter them even though they, they don't technically meet it. But it's like, no, 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 you can't, if you want people to, to, to apply that actually meet these that don't cut out particularly women, then you have to be accurate. Jackie, tell us about how you have seen a lens of diversity come in, even just in terms of the readings that you have your students do. Sure. And I, yeah, this is something that Rob and I talk a lot about, and we sort of brainstorm strategies in terms of how do we have a more representative, diverse voice or body of voices in a classroom. And that includes the readings that students will do. Typically, I think for many of us, we just have the textbook for the class. And historically, that's what I've always done for classes. I have the textbook. I, when I'm creating my syllabus, I have chapter readings from the textbook. But I'm becoming more conscious of the fact that when I'm thinking of readings for a course, I really want a diverse body of voices represented. And so sometimes that might mean that I need to go out and actually look for readings that are representing a different angle in my field, which is psychology. So it's a little bit of a joke in our field, but there's actually a book called Even the Rat Was White. And that's talking about the history of psychology and that it has been more of a, a mainstream cultural voice that's been represented there in the history and, and the, the main theorists who have contributed to our beloved field. This is something that I really need to improve on. I was mentioning that I have never even gone to look at the authors of the textbooks that I assign. Mm. And and like like you said, it doesn't necessarily have to mean that you change a textbook, but how do you then provide other means for students to be able to see their own faces and their own cultures exposed in what we share with them? How would you suggest, and either one of you, in terms of if we know we're not there now, I know I'm not there now, what would be some different things that I could do to maybe move myself a couple steps along the path? I think the most important thing is that you're asking that question. The fact that you care enough, and even if you're like, oh, I'm not on the path yet, but you, you that you care, that's the first step, right? Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's the first place I would go. 
One of the things I've shared on the podcast before is that in my intro to business class in the very beginning, I share about that businesses don't typically get started because someone starts with a solution, but they start with a problem to be solved. And I have found uh, some success at diversifying the examples that I use there. I give some medical examples, but I also give, I guess suppose this is still a medical example, but there was, I believe it was a Stanford student, but I'll link to it in the show notes in case I'm wrong, but who invented some plates and utensils for Parkinson's mm. patients. And they also happen to work well for different uses such as children, but, but she really talks about the problem of Parkinson's and the shaking hands and how they have trouble sometimes getting enough food in. And if they find that there's more color on a plate, then I guess that we're all more likely to consume more. Mm. And to me, that just helps bring a different lens on how all of our students might be able to start in their own lives with the ideas that emerge into their minds and things they want to create to become more inclusive. And I know, Rob, you have a story to share about your assignment you give for some of your reluctant app developers. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Bonnie. One, one class that I teach is building apps, Android apps. And so it's sort of a third semester programming course. Students have some experience and they're very entrepreneurial at USC. It's a big, great spirit for that. But I was consistently getting apps that were either dating apps or like, we're going to build a Tinder clone. (laughs) Cause one's not enough. Sorry. I've never (laughs) been used to it, but I feel like one's enough. (laughs) Right. 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 Or when literally there were multiple every semester, like, event finding events and finding parties at USC and I and I would just joke that it's how hard is it to find a party at USC right it's a it's a very like outgoing sort of celebratory school to say and so after just getting fed up I was like okay your app now has it can be whatever you want but that has to have a theme of social good and I very much wanted to not impose my own my own agenda and my own feelings on it so I was like it's whatever you know, you have you have to made them sort of do some research, just like one page, you know, and say, okay, what's the need for this? Um, and I was like, it can be ecology, it can be social justice, it can be like civil rights, like whatever it is you want to do. I, I don't want to say like this is what I care about. You have to do it. And students were reluctant, I think, because they came in with like, but I want to build a dating app. But some of them were really cool at the end of the semester. Some of them were. One of them was like a learning app for an inner city high school. One was like a walk, two are actually walk home safe apps. So like you're leaving a party and you set a beacon and it would tell your friends like you're walking home and I'm going to keep doing that despite some reluctance because I think it's, uh, as you talked about the empathy part, it's like the whole point would be design an app that will benefit people that are not you and just, just take that perspective. You can, you have all your life to start a, you know, a a billion dollar unicorn app that's going to, you know set you for the rest of life, but let's just try taking someone else's perspective for, for four months and see, see how it goes. That ability to both have empathy for your students, but not to let the empathy overtake the importance of challenging them. I mean, that mm. we can all three think about times when we were challenged in college and what that has meant to us as people as we sit here today. And I've regularly had my students, I ask them, especially as they get into junior and senior level classes where 
they are, I'm going to ask them to research something that they don't initially have interest in. And I'll tell you the grumbling, it comes, <laughs> it comes like nobody's business. And my TA who has been in a number of my classes came to me about three weeks ago and came right into my office. He's all full of energy. He says, you were right. You were right. You had us research that. I totally wasn't interested in it at all. And I got on this interview and I'll be darned if that's all that we talked about. <laughs> but how many times our students need to be prepared and equipped to go out into the world and as you said, Rob, take a perspective of someone who is not them. I mean, mm -hmm. how much more fortunate will they be just in terms of the ability to con contribute in diverse environments, mm -hmm. but then also in information technology and in business and psychology, we're regularly going to be our students, we hope, are going to be exposed to things that are new to them and mm -hmm. they'll continue to learn and be ready to take on those challenges if we sort of don't just cater to their, their wishes. It's really a balancing act, I think. Jackie, can you talk a little bit about how sometimes that women, especially our young women students, how they can have a feeling that they don't really belong where they are? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's something that I'm becoming more aware of, both with the the young women students that I'm seeing in my classroom, and then I'm just sort of growing in my own personal awareness and self-awareness about how this might affect me or what this looks like for those of us who work in academic settings. But I can really see, you know, I think especially with my training as a psychologist, when I just walk into the classroom, um, of course, when we walk in, you know, we're, we're thinking about getting plugged into the projector and getting our PowerPoint slides up. And do we have handouts we need to pull out of our bag and all the logistics that we go through of teaching. And, you know, I think it's sometimes I can get so focused on that task mode of getting set up that there's also this level that I'm becoming more aware of recently of just what is going on in, in the social dynamic of my classroom when I just look up, look around. And so um, there was a class that I was teaching last year at another institution and it was a very small seminar style class where we all just sat around one table and this was a doctoral class and I just started to notice all of a sudden every week that the two males always sat right next to me no matter if they were the first ones that came to the classroom if they were the last ones who came into the classroom and I just started to think about what does this look like in terms of who sits where in the classroom um, who feels comfortable raising their hand in the classroom who never raises their hand even if it looks like they may know the answer mm who feels comfortable challenging me as a professor, which at times I appreciate and I need in respectful ways, um, but who would never do that even if they were right and I was wrong. Mm -hmm. So noticing a lot of the, I guess I would say the unspoken dynamics and um, oftentimes it's with female students that we can notice some of those power dynamics, female versus male students, the gender dynamics, but also in terms of ethnic or racial background, that I've sort of noticed, particularly with some of the demographics that, of students that come through our institution, that there are some students who need to be almost um, acknowledged and called out more in the classroom setting. And so I've just tried to challenge myself a little bit, whether it's a moment before class or a moment after class, that students who seem like they don't feel like they belong or don't feel like their voice is important, I'm trying to go out of my way just to connect with them more personally or just go you know, kind of crouch down at their level when they're sitting at a table and just look them in the eye and ask them how they're doing or how was their weekend or how are they doing with the class? And Rob, I know you have experience with this as well, seeing the, actually, I there are lower f numbers of females in your classes, correct? There tend to be, yeah. Although 
because I do technology for non-engineers, it does, it's a little bit more even, but yeah, they're definitely not, it's not parody. So you've noticed some things in your teaching too about how women show up in the class. Yeah. Yeah. I'm fortunate to teach uh, technical computer programming classes for non-engineers, primarily non-engineers. And what I like is I get to interact with history majors, jazz majors, communications majors across the university. And so what I get, especially in the intro classes, is get a lot of students, male and female, who thought, oh, I could never be a programmer, or I could never do this, my, my you know, family member does it, or my roommate does it, but I'm not smart enough to do it. And it's definitely across all gender and ethnic racial lines, but more often than not, it, I see a lot of female students who don't feel comfortable, they don't feel like they belong in this technology slash programming environment and it's both because they didn't they weren't encouraged necessarily uh, maybe in math and science and technology younger or um, you know the studies that show girls have a huge drop off around junior high in math right for various reasons Um, and so they get here to to my class and I've had multiple every semester students where both the gamut of like Students, as, as Jackie said, that know the answer. Like, I know that they know the answer, but they only feel comfortable if no one else will say anything and five seconds of silence had passed and then they kind of raise their hand. And that happens enough where I'm like, oh, you know, I, I try to encourage them outside of class to say, hey, I know that you always know the answer. And, and not to pressure them to speak up, but to actually say like, hey, do you want to take other classes in this field? Because it seems like you really, you both really enjoy it and you're good at it. And I've had other students that have come to me crying, female students, and they're like, I don't belong here. I want to drop the class. And so, you know, we'll, we'll talk, I'll talk to them privately and say, it seems like I know it looks as though other people know this better than you do. But, you know, to be frank, some people are boasting, as we talked about earlier, or they're, they're, they're also insecure. And so that comes out as wanting to show me how much they know. And so kind of normalizing that a little bit mm-hmm. for them. And not necessarily talking about gender dynamics with them because I think, you know, at 18, they, that might not be a conversation they're, they're having, but just encouraging them that like, you're getting this. Like I can externally validate that you understand this. And like, I've seen a lot of students and you're, you're of the kind that you should consider more of this if you, if you like it, if it's fun. Um, and generally when those students continue to take classes or I see them again and um, they're enjoying it and they've gone past that first class where they, they felt insecure and they were like, they kind of belong that is, it's super um, heartwarming to me. And I, I don't know, I kind of downplayed a little bit with them, but because I, I don't want them to feel uncomfortable, but it's, it means so much to me that like they've overcome something and whether they do this as a career or not, I just think that it's really cool that they got to experience that, hey, I can take on a new challenge where I feel like I'm not going to do very well. And then I do. And, and hopefully that gives them confidence in everything in life, hopefully. I'm realizing that if we had disagreed before today that we were going to talk about empathy, I'm realizing as each of you is sharing your stories that I tend to think of that word as a passive word. If you, if you say that mm. someone showed empathy toward you, mm-hmm. I picture you going to them and then responding with empathy. But what I'm hearing from both of your stories is that empathy needs to be really active and intentional in terms of engaging and having more inclusive environments. Does that resonate with either of you and any, any stories come to mind or examples? Definitely. I think um, I, I really feel like part of the conversation we're having really is about empathy and perspective taking 
in light of inclusion and diversity and and also I think about love. I don't know how often we talk about love and higher education, mm. but certainly we talk about, you know, loving our colleagues and loving our students, but what do we really mean about that in terms of how we care about them? There it has to be active. I've heard this quote that says, you know, love is an action. Mm-hmm. It's not a feeling. Um because I think part of the conversation about diversity and inclusion at a higher level tends to be about tolerance, which isn't bad, but in some ways I think that just sets the bar too low because we're not just necessarily aiming to tolerate people and be okay with being around them. Mm. It it seems like there's a lot more to that that's possible. We are going to end this portion of the show on a more hopeful note. You each began by depressing us, but only because I asked you to, (laughs) with a story in which you did not feel empathy. You did not feel love. And I would just love to hear from each of you now of a time where you really did feel love. I would say when I was younger, uh, much younger in in grade school, um, there's a point in which I had to have uh, a surgery. And I remember that my principal at the time donated blood. And that was just kind of like a selfless kind of unnecessary act. I mean, necessary than that I needed it, but he didn't have to do that. And so yeah, that's what came to came to my mind. Yeah, I guess most educators don't walk around thinking their students are literally going to have their blood. <laughs> <laughs> literally blood, sweat, and tears. But I had a memory of one of my very first days in my first year of my doctoral program. And this is far before I was ever thinking about who I was in the classroom as a student in terms of being female or being biracial as I am, uh, multiracial actually, but I remember the professor was just going around. It was just an icebreaker activity. And I think something typical, maybe we were supposed to say one thing that was interesting about them ourselves. And I don't remember what I said, but I said something really basic. And I said, I think I like cushioned it afterward and said, oh, that's really boring. I mean, that's kind of the only thing about me that's interesting. And I remember he just looked me in the eye and he said, you know what? I'm sure there's so much more about you that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, like it just really stuck with me. And, you know, he didn't have to say that. He could have laughed at my self-denigration. But um, I really remember that, that he meant it. And he saw a lot more to me than perhaps I saw in myself as a student at the beginning of my doctoral program. Yeah. Thanks for sharing those stories. It's the part of the show where we each get to recommend something. And I'm going to go first and then I'll pass it over to Jackie and we'll let Rob Conclude, because I know Rob has more on his list (laughs) than we do. I've been prepared, duly prepared. And this was actually a video that was tweeted at me by one of the listeners. Tracy Joseph tweeted this video over to me, and it is, what kind of Asian are you? And she said, listen to the recent podcast about presumed incompetent, and this clip came to mind regarding microaggressions and flipping the script. And I went into it this morning when I went to watch it and thought like, okay, serious, this is going to be very serious. And so here we go. I'm just going to play a very, very brief part of the clip and then encourage you to go listen. I should say watch. Hi there. Hi. Nice day, huh? Yeah, finally, right? Where are you from? Your English is perfect. San Diego. We speak English there. Oh, uh, no. uh, Where are you from? Well, I was born in Orange County, but I never actually lived there. I, uh, I mean, before that. 
you get the general idea. And let me just say that there is an unexpected twist that uh, I don't want to give too much away, but will make you laugh. It's not one that leaves you <laughs> depressed. It's one that leaves you cracking up at some of the things that hopefully we all recognize that we have a potential for doing and that just remind us to keep getting better, keep asking questions, keep challenging ourselves and really exposing ourselves to people that are different than us on a regular basis. So I would strongly, strongly, strongly urge you to check out the link to this video, which I'll post in the show notes. And there's going to be some other good links too, including Jackie's recommendation. So um, when you said flipping the script, that was really funny because right before we were recording this, I thought, you know what? I do have a recommendation. It's from an NPR podcast called Invisibilia. And the name of the episode is Flip the Script. And I had a friend who texted me and said, you have to listen to this episode, Jackie. I totally thought of you when I listened to it. And the episode is all about the power of love. It's also about how when you get to know someone as a human being, how powerful that is um, in terms of breaking down barriers. And it's also a little bit about countering violent extremism and radicalization, which is something I've taken a recent academic interest in. So I'd highly recommend Flip the Script is the name of the episode. The podcast is Invisibilia um, by NPR. Thanks. And Rob, how about yours? I will be quick. So, <laughs> Oh, it's okay. <laughs> okay. So given the, the, the theme that we were talking about, I, I have three, three things I'll recommend. One, uh, one is a little bit easier to, to, to digest, I suppose. The first is um, a book that my outstanding friend Sarah Schwartz recommended, and it's called um, Whistling Vivaldi. It's just it's a fascinating academic look at um, stereotype threat, which, you know, if, if it's not something you're familiar with, it's it's the idea that the extra cognitive load that you face by trying to be afraid of confirming the stereotypes people believe about you. And it's fascinating because it's um, it's all the academic studies in a sort of a narrative form um, that cross all sorts of ethnic gender lines and you can induce that fear into someone and then they'll perform significantly worth on whether it's uh, in the track and field or math tests or whatever it might be. Um, even if you make up fake sort of stereotypes that they then believe about themselves. But obviously it has much broader implications about societal stereotypes. So it's really fascinating. The second one, which I'll, I'll, challenge, I'll challenge people with, is the NPR podcast Code Switch, which is a fascinating, challenging look at um, race issues in America. Someone recommended Code Switch on the Slack channel for teaching in higher ed. And it was in reference to, I believe, the recent episode about presumed incompetent. I think that was the juxtaposition. How funny is this that I thought, oh, it's a technology podcast that just happened to have one of their episodes <laughs> focus on race. Didn't know until you're sitting right here. It's not coding like that. It's a different kind of coding, I'm guessing. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's so code switch in, in the sense that people have multiple identities and based on where in the context that you're in, you, you code switch from. Uh, no, I, <laughs> I'm loving that. I totally didn't get it. I'm learning all the time on this podcast. See, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm a good student of the podcast <laughs> and of the Slack channel, too. I got it now. Got it. And now I want to listen even more, even though I still wanted to listen back when it was a technology podcast that had one episode about race. Yes, it's there. Yeah, they're all about race. <laughs> <laughs> I got it. I got it. <laughs> um, the last one I'll leave you with, which really does fit the other theme today. I have a long commute, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, as many of us do. It's called The Memory Palace. 
and it is an outstanding short series about essentially about American history, but it's told um, it's little vignettes of people's lives who aren't necessarily famous people from history told in this beautiful narrative way um, that I think really does engender empathy for other people's perspectives. Um, and so I would, I would encourage that. They're definitely not all about necessarily race issues, certainly not, but just in taking in perspective taking it's, it's, it's beautiful. There's times when I, I'm often, I'm often moved by the end because the stories are so um, beautiful and they're very short too. Thanks to both of you for being here. And as we close our time together, my stomach's rumbling. We're about to enjoy some <laughs> barbecue chicken. And, and you brought ice cream and cookies for the kids, which yep. they are going to be very focused on. And we'll make sure they eat enough of the nutritious stuff to get to the, the treats after. And um, I really appreciate your time. I'm hoping this is just the beginning of a great relationship and it's not the first dinner and not the first podcast uh, visit. So thanks so much for investing your time. And it's fun getting to correspond to and seeing how you experience episodes. I think those are that's just a fun way to build this community. So thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the Teaching in Higher Ed email list, that's a weekly update that'll come. And all of these links that we just talked about, including a podcast that is not about coding, <laughs> uh, that could come into your inbox once a week and get the links to the show notes and also a uh, blog post written by me about teaching or productivity. You can just go to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I hope you'll consider giving the show a rating or review on whatever podcast app it is that you use to listen to the show. It makes us grow this community even larger and allow for future barbecues to include even more of you. So if you're down in Southern California, <clears throat> thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.